0: I first sat with ayahuasca in Brazil in 2007. Hmm. Um, I did six ceremonies in Brazil. I had an incredible, incredible experience with it. And then I came home and I started to lose that magic from it. And I didn't realize until I went back to Colombia a couple months later and drank three more, did three more ceremonies, that I resumed my pretty you know, good drinking habit mm. and then the, the effects, the good effects from ayahuasca started to, and that summer I actually, actually this might be the pivotal moment, I got punched in the face. <laughs> I got punched in the
1: face twice. Not in a metaphorical way. Yeah, like no, no, literally. no. I got
0: literally punched by a guy in Columbus, Ohio. Well, listen, Mr. Josh Radner, how are you doing, brother? Hey, man. Well, I'm like overall very good. Good i'm just having like as I told you I'm having that uh, the weird kind of day where I just feel like my rhythms are a touch off, but uh-huh. i feel I have a feeling the more we talk i'm gonna just
1: drop in yeah and i'll feel uh i'll feel back back in my body Somebody was telling me today that. It's the Scorpio lunar eclipse. Oh, sure. So yes. So that
0: could be <laughs> I actually find myself like when I don't know what's going on and I feel weird and someone's like, where's in retrograde. And I'm always like, thank God. Like it feels, <laughs> it feels like, okay, there's a there's an astrological reason for right. everyone's feeling it.
1: It's not just me. I like it when it's not personal. Well, the funny, the funny thing was that I was interviewed, I was telling you, in this studio next door this afternoon on this other show called Almost 30. And she was talking about how like, like I do not remember what it was. Some about, something about the Scorpio lunar eclipse. And I was talking about how I had this dream last night of this guy who was very intense in my dream who actually had, Lunar eclipse for eyes. Whoa! So he was like peering at me and he had to do lunar eclipse. So maybe I'm I'm dialed in. And you're a Scorpio, and I'm a Scorpio. I'm yeah. dialed into the lunar eclipse. <laughs> I didn't even know I'm channeling something. Yeah. But she made a point of checking in with me to make sure I was okay. She's like, "Are you like? How are you today? What do like, What does it mean? Is it a very intense moment? Like for? I have no idea. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I I don't know. Did. I think I don't know. Yeah. Somebody sent me something about it because this other woman actually had a that I'm going through this. Training with a mentor of mine reached out and said, "I had a dream that I was at your house having a party at your house for the for the lunar eclipse." Wow! And I was like, "Wow, well, that's that's pretty wild." So yeah. something's happening, you yeah. know. Mercury's not in retrograde, but Scorpio is in eclipse. So. With all that said, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you're just feeling what I am supposed to be feeling. You know? Yeah, there's some transference. <laughs> there's some transference. Yeah. It's like I remember when I went and did my ayahuasca event. Every single I went and did four series down in Costa Rica. And Every time that I felt like I had to throw up, somebody next with me next to me would start. Oh yeah, that happens quite a bit. And I was yeah. like, "This is thank you so much for taking the bullet for yeah, me." So someone starts crying for you. Right, so it's like really weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I have been thoroughly looking forward to this conversation. I have so much love and adoration for you. And um, anytime that we get to spend together, I just, I feel like there's a kindred spirit uh, sitting across from me. And I've loved our hikes. I've loved our talks. And so I am really excited to just selfishly get to know you on a deeper level through this medium that I have come to love. And for the people that are a part of my life through the listenership to get to know you. Because you're, you're really a, a special human being. Oh, thanks, so, man. Yeah.
0: I, you know, I've, I've, uh, you sent me the Martin Shaw yeah. episode, which I just flipped for it. And I've done a deep dive into Martin Shaw. Like I, I can't urge people enough to like, <laughs> this guy is really saying something. in it. And also like he's the best voice of all of the voices. Yeah. So you can listen to him forever. But I love that so much. And then I, I just started listening to your podcast. I listened to the the small ones, you know. That I listened to the big interviews. I just listened to Richard Reeves, which uh, I didn't know you got him on because I sent you that article, which is yeah. so cool. But I love that one. I've loved so many of them, and I think, you know, I, I, it'll sound like just we just you just had me on here so we could compliment each other. I think you do an amazing job. <laughs> like, like I, I think you you're you're a great interviewer, and you're so curious, and you you know, you, you, you disclose appropriately, like you, you, you tell people where you are on your journey and where you've been and where you've Mm. come from and where you're headed. And I, I think that, you know, I'm getting a lot from it and we, I I feel like we're contemporaries, but I feel like I think about like, if I was a teenager in my twenties, I'm in a, you know, I'm in a men's group. I've been in a men's group for years and I'm one of the older guys. I might be the oldest guy in the group, (laughs) but like some of my very dearest friends are like 29, 30, 31. Mm. and. I think about being that age, like I didn't have anything like this. I was not talking. I I actually didn't understand the importance of leaning into like male friendships. Yeah. I was actually like a female-centered person, both, you know, sexually, romantically and friendship-wise. And actually someone said to me, if you want to heal your relationships with women lean into your friendships with men mm. like that's where you're going to get a lot of healing around the feminine and i i didn't understand i totally understand that now but i'm just thinking like what a great resource for young men to have your channel and your, your these podcasts your book which is incredible i'm not done with it but Thank i'm about you. halfway through it's just it's so good and i just i just feel like it's like crystalline waters for people that are lost and there's so many crazy messages floating around mixed messages mm-hmm. around manhood masculinity male the word even feels kind of provocative you were talking with richard reeves about that yeah so i just hats off like i think you do an amazing job thanks man yeah thank you i, I appreciate that
1: and and I, I agree and there's threads in what you said that i already want to pull on but i want to stick with the one aspect of the structure of my show, because <laughs> <laughs> my show is not super structured yeah. besides this one piece, which I've asked everybody for years now, which is tell us a story or stories about defining moments in your life that have made you who you are today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We were saying, I. you say you sometimes surprise guests with that. And I'm like, well, if you've been listening to your podcast, it's not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think I'll, these are, these are a little broader. They're not super sharp stories. Maybe the first one is. But I cut two things out of my life that, and years ago. But I don't drink alcohol and I don't watch pornography. Mm. And I've talked about both of these somewhat, but never in a kind of, I've never really linked them as much as I probably will, will attempt to do now. But anyway, I, I went to, I, I, um, I, I first sat with ayahuasca in Brazil in 2007. Mm. Um, I did six ceremonies in Brazil had an incredible, incredible experience with it. And then I came home and I started to lose that magic from it. And I didn't realize until I went back to Colombia a couple months later and drank three more, did three more ceremonies that I resumed my, pretty, you know, good drinking habit. Mm. And then the, the effects, the good effects from ayahuasca started to... And that summer, I actually, actually, this might be the p- pivotal moment. I got punched in the face. <laughs> I got punched in the face twice.
1: Not in a metaphorical
0: way. Yeah, like no, no, literally. no. I got literally punched by a guy in Columbus, Ohio. I had met this woman, <laughs> this nursing student whose name I won't say. And I was back in Columbus, Ohio. I was seeing my family And I gave her a call because she had given me her number, and we went out, and we just started downing cocktails, you know. (laughs) And I, and and then she mentioned that she had a boyfriend, which I did not know about. But Uh I thought, you know what? I'm just in town for the night. Doesn't bother me if it doesn't bother her. That's where I was at that point, Uh you know. Uh Yeah, good. So we're downing cocktails, and and cut to this guy. He knew we were out together. He shows up at one of the bars we're at. Tries to get her to leave with him. She refuses. Oh, boy. And then we go to another, and I'm just hammered. The the idea that I was driving is outrageous, Uh you know. Uh Uh, But I drop her off, and he was in the parking lot kind of waiting for her. He cuts me off, and I, you know, he gets out of his car. He's He's blocked me off, and he tells me to roll down the window. And I stupidly roll down the window.
1: Don't. That, that's a tip. That's another tip. Don't, of like, don't
0: roll down the window. You know you've had of your mom's Toyota all. Camry, right? If <laughs> if the guy is after you. So, I he said, "Get out of the car! Like, get out of the car!" I'm uh-huh. not a like get out of the car guy. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I've never been in like a fight, fight like that. So, so you, I could have been there and it would have been, you could have, helpful. if you were been there, that would have been helpful. That's I don't think seat. you would have said that if you were in the car, but I, I'm, I'm seatbelted into my mom's Toyota Camry, <laughs> lowers the window. And, uh, he says, get out of the car. And I said, dude, I was not trying to sleep with your girl. Whap! Oh. Right. Okay. So, and I was, I was so drunk that I, I, I felt the sting of it, but not quite right. pain. You're,
1: no, you got the alcohol yeah. numbing, numbing. Age.
0: And I, and I, oh no, no, no. I said, no, at first I said, I'm not going to get out of the car. That's when he punched me. And then I was shocked, and I said, I was not trying to sleep with your girl. Another one. That one uncorks blood everywhere. Oh, he got me right in the nose. The first one was the eye. Uh-huh. The second one was the nose. And I'm bleeding everywhere. He, I think, sees it. And you know, I think he felt like he did his work. Uh-huh. So he he gets in his car, drives away. And I get home, and I'm just... Like a month or two after, like a month and a half after, after deep, heart-opening spiritual experience, I'm suddenly hammered, covered in my blood, scrubbing blood off my mom's <laughs> leather. You know, how old, how old are you at this time? I'm 32. Okay, awesome. okay, yeah, that's good. And you know, my mom, I had to wake up my mom because I I called a friend I think who was in L.A. like, and they were like, I, I couldn't get my nose to stop bleeding, and they're like, you probably shouldn't lie down, right. you know, right? So I had to wake up my mom, and then my dad comes in the morning and, he, you know, they put like frozen peas on my face and I'm just like humiliated, you know? I'm like, you know, like, hey, mom and dad, I got this life thing figured out. And I'm like, no, I don't. Then I go back to Columbia a couple months later. I go back in August. This is before the third uh, season of How I Met Your Mother. And it's my second ceremony there. So it'd been my eighth ceremony total. And I had an uh, an entire evening about my drinking. Mm. Like an entire evening. I saw... I, I won't even go into all the visions, but almost the entire night was about my drink. And I had never considered my relationship to alcohol. I have, there's a, I had an alcoholic grandfather who I never met. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had this kind of genetic predisposition, but I wasn't a, I, I wasn't a bad drunk. I wasn't a surly drunk. I was quite charming. No, when I told people I quit drinking, they were like, you didn't have a drinking problem. You know, everyone insisted I didn't. Yeah. Um, but I called, a, I called my buddy Dion from the Miami airport and told him, I think I, the message was clear. Like, yeah. like it was an invitation. It wasn't like you have to, but it was like mm. your life would be better if you cut alcohol out. And I called my buddy Dion, who'd been so he got sober when we were in grad school. So I knew him for a lot of years, and he was really big and, you know twelve step. And and I told him I, th- I think I got to quit drinking. But right when I said it, I started weeping. Like mm. I, I just the let go felt really big and scary because yeah. I'd never socialized without drinking. I, I I mean it was so reflexive to order a drink sure. dinner you know, wherever. And I also think I my drinking had ticked up considerably since I'd been on How I Met Your Mother. I was I, I was uncomfortable about a lot of things. So so I, I didn't drink for about four years. And then I, I tried. I thought, I can drink like a gentleman. I tried. <clears throat> that didn't work. I tried one other time. But it's been about seven years, I think, since I've had a drink. M- m- you know, since 2007, I've had way more time not drinking than drinking. Mm. And I just want to say, like, I work some 12-step program, but they're not around substance abuse. Uh-huh. And um, I'm what you call California sober. What's that? <laughs> so I'll, I'll smoke pot and I, uh. I'll partake of psychedelics. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm that's not that, a yeah. sober. I like to I like to alter my consciousness. It's just I don't do it
1: with alcohol anymore. Yeah. And that's worked out pretty well for me. Which we're going to we're gonna talk about at some point. It, I want to just maybe pause here for a second before we get into the porn Because I'm like, you know, do you get punched in the face with the porn, but it's interesting because I had a similar, you know, I I quit drinking three or four years ago now. Mm -hmm. Same thing. I was, I was really, well, at that time I really wasn't drinking very much, but there was something in me that wanted to see what I would be capable of without substances. Yeah. Period. And, and so I, you know, I, I've been sober without anything for a while now, but it started in an ayahuasca journey as well, where I have addiction in my family, specifically alcoholism. Yeah. And I've seen it really erode and destroy a few people's lives in my family. Yeah. And it was interesting because in one of the ceremonies that I had, I was in, I don't know how much of this I want to tell out of respect for the one person, but I had a very intense experience where I could see the addiction in my family being Uh, transferred through the lineage and into me. Yeah, wow, yeah. And it became so clear in that moment that this addictive pattern was what had taken my grandfather because he died very early on in my mom's life. And there was addiction on my mom's side of the family. There was addiction on my dad's side of the family. And I had these experiences where I could see how the addiction had transferred into me.
0: Yeah, yeah. It wasn't unlike my... Well, I I will tell you that what what I saw that night. I moved, I I was in this little tiny one bedroom apartment in Los Angeles. I got the show and I was still in that for the first year. But I I then bought a house, Mm. a a really nice house that I was in for a lot of years. But I hadn't moved in yet because I was getting some work done on on the place. But I did have a huge barbecue (laughs) and I invited all these people over for this barbecue. My friend Rachel and I went to like a BevMo or something and we bought so much alcohol. There were probably 50 people that came. We had alcohol for 150. You know, there was so much alcohol. Oh my and gosh. I had a vision when I was in Colombia. I thought I saw my house. And the only thing that was there was alcohol. Mm. Like that was all I had moved in. And that was all that was... The, the only remnant of me or the evidence of my owning or being in that place was just booze. Mm. And I really... it 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 startled me. And then I saw myself in my apartment drinking wine, these wine bottles just went down and down and down. And it wasn't like I was drinking them, but they, I was, and I was getting drunker and drunker and drunker and drunker mm. and falling into the couch. And then I, my part of my spirit, like lifted out of the inebriated body wow. and just shot through the sky, went to that new house and then shot up into the kind of astral huh. into the heavens. And I, and, and I was with, you know, ancestors and, and angelic kind of beings, but it was, like the alcohol felt really heavy mm. it felt like a like cement around my feet mm. right and without it kind of what you were saying like what am i capable of it felt like there was much more ascendant kind of energy mm-hmm. um th- those were the two i really that really stuck with me but the whole evening like i said was about was about it so
1: powerful man and and we're, i think we'll we'll come back to this a couple of times in terms of psychedelics and exploring that territory because it, I think it's played a huge part from what I know in your life. It's played a big part in, in my life for sure. But I want to come back to the porn. I don't want to oh, pass that sure. yeah. up because you said that those two things were sort of connected and yeah. they were, they were uh, monumental.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually like not that dramatic a story. This is maybe a year or two after i had quit drinking. Um, it's interesting when you dial down one addiction and another one kind of goes up mm-hmm. like like a, <laughs> you know whack-a-mole whack-a-mole right?
1: yeah. whack-a-mole with your unhealthy behavioral yeah, patterns. yeah yeah and i
0: like for instance when i stopped drinking I, I thought i never had a sweet tooth and suddenly i was craving dessert and it's like oh you get a ton of sugar from alcohol and you take right. that away you actually are into sugar you're just getting it in a different you right. know, way but i i was dating this woman that i really loved and i had a really what felt like a really healthy sex life, healthy attraction. I didn't like long for another person. But I remember there was this day, I, I, my porn had ticked up, you know. Mm. And I remember there was this day where I was, she was like leaving and then she had to come back and I was like dying for her to get out of the apartment mm. so I could watch porn. And it wasn't like I got super deep down the rabbit hole. I just knew my psyche is too fragile for that mm. shit like it is, I, I, I assume you, you can do it like a gentleman. And I'm not, it's not like a moral ethical thing with me, although I do think there are moral ethical issues involved. But for me, it was, it made me sexualize every woman I saw. It made me objectify every woman I saw. And I, I just thought, I would like to be healthy, sexually, energetically. And it felt like a drain on my libido and it felt like that energy again like that energy could be used you know all these things made me feel drinking porn i d- i would describe it like driving with the emergency brake on mm. like i'm still my life's still going yeah you know it's just like i had the feeling like there was a drag like i could be moving a little faster yeah it's like where's the smoke coming from <laughs> yeah 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 exactly something's burning and i don't yeah. know what it is exactly and i and i stopped and i had one relapse i was in spain traveling around i was writing this movie liberal arts And I had one relapse and for some reason, and I think this was like, I I look at it as a very spiritual thing, but for some reason, I just haven't been, I haven't gone back. I haven't, it's been years, like a lot of years, like 2010 or 11. And, um, those two things, like getting porn out of my life and alcohol out of my life were the two best kind of excising things, like, like cutting things out. Those are the two best I've ever done Uh because, um... I have an addictive personality. I just have the thing. I have the thing. More is better. I have that. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> if something's good, more is better. My friend's joke, you know, my, my friend gave me, a, my Burning Man maybe calls me Booster because I'm always like, we should boost. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, let's boost. Let's crank it up a little bit. get a bit. picture
1: from like uh, Mad Max, you know, with a like spray spraying the silver on with the to- in the Tom Hardy movie, not the original, oh, but oh, the oh. Tom Hardy movie. And it's like, get the boost. Oh, I don't remember that, um, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's I, I get that. Yeah, I have that personality yeah. and, too, and and I just, um, those were just two really good decisions. You where know? where do you think that comes from? The addictive thing. Yeah, like a buddy of mine had a saying of like, as a whenever I would ask him. Do you want to smoke a little bit more weed? Do you want to take a little bit more mushrooms? Do you want to drink a little bit more? His response was always the same, and it was as a classic overconsumer of everything. The answer is yes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And so, I, but I feel like I have that part within. Me. I've joked around that like there is a 500 pound fat man inside of me that just wants to eat junk food, smoke weed, yeah. get drunk, watch porn, and fuck all the time. And yes. like that exists within me. And I don't know if everyone has that, or if that there's some of us that just have more of that part that is stronger. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting
0: thing to tease out. And I don't know if you could land on something definitive because I think part of it is there is addictive tendencies in certain people. Yeah. I think I have them in certain ways. And in other ways, I'm incredibly disciplined Mm. and incredibly can walk away from certain things. Yeah. And I also, even though I amplify my consciousness occasionally, I do it fairly sparingly. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not like, it's not an everyday thing. I don't wake up and do, you know, I see people right. who are like, they exist on pot. I just could not do that. But I also think there's something young about it, like adolescent, mm. like- um, About addiction. Uh, well, about addiction, but also knowing your limits. Like it feels like a, uh-huh. what, I just read a great quote that was, someone said, you can't know what your limits are until you've like passed them essentially. Like you only know what your limit is when you've gone way past uh-huh. your limit, yeah. you know? So in some ways there's a kind of like, turning the knobs of like life uh-huh. where it's like you're experimenting. Like, what if I, what if I drank seven nights a week? What would, oh, that doesn't work. Yeah. You know, what if I never watched what I ate and I'm over 35? Oh, that doesn't work. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like you have to kind of like, you just have to kind of experiment on yourself yeah. and determine. So that's why when people say, I don't like anything that's overly prescriptive or says all people need to do this. Mm. It's like, that's actually not true. I used to be an incredibly energetic ayahuasca evangelist <laughs> until I realized, you know, it's a very rookie mistake. Like, I'm going to buy you a t-shirt that says ayahuasca, <laughs> ayahuasca evangelist. evangelist. You do ayahuasca and the first thing, everyone says it, is like, we need to get every world leader and politician right. in a room and do this. And I understand it's a very sweet sentiment. It's yeah. like, oh, this is very heart opening and all you feel is peaceful afterwards. You don't want to wage war or even mm. get in an argument. Like you're just in your heart. I get that, but I... Like, should my dad do Iowa? I don't think <laughs> right. my dad should, yeah. you know, even though I've I've offered, you know. <laughs>
1: but but like there are certain people... I would have loved to have been there for that
0: conversation. <laughs> so dad, listen. Uh- <laughs> there are certain people I think that maybe, you know, meditation might not be for them, you know. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I just have found certain things that work for me. And I'm still making adjustments as I go because I'm changing. I'm a work in progress. But I have found certain things... Doing certain things works
1: for me and not doing certain things works for me. I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about you. One of the many things that I feel like we have in common in a time where there's such a polarizing, almost fundamentalist approach to everything. Everything. Even in the therapeutic industry. Yeah. Like this is the way. And it's like, well, what if there's other ways? Yeah. Right. And that seems like paradox seems very challenging for the individual to hold in today's yeah culture. and and for me it's like an essential uh-huh. thing you know what 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 in your life would you say has contributed to you moving towards that that urge to hold paradox that desire to like not get locked in of like this is the only way that I should live my life, and this is the way that I should adhere in life,
0: yeah. Well, I think I had a really good experience in college academically. And I found that, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the great truth. They say the great, you know, who said this? John, what's his face? He used to talk to dolphins. I forget his name. John Lilly. He, he was very interested in <laughs> interspecies communication, but he did say this great thing about, oh no, maybe he didn't say this. You know what? Fact check this. <laughs> Tell your <laughs> listener. Someone said, Oh, no, no, no. He said the, the 11th commandment is thou shalt not bore God, which is incredible. That is pretty good. But the, the, someone said there are lesser truths and greater truths. It might have been a quantum physicist. But the lesser truth, the opposite of a lesser truth is an untruth. Hmm. But the opposite of a greater truth is another great truth. Hmm. So I f- I had this experience in college where I realized that something could be true and its opposite could be true. Just that basic kind of fact that that, The opposite of a truth is not always an untruth. Sometimes it's another truth or looked at from another way. Mm. I also, I do want to give some credit to my dad. My dad is not an alarmist.
1: Mm.
0: He's a sober man. And I don't mean that in the classic. I mean, he has a sober mind and he's, he doesn't go zero to a hundred. He doesn't get, you know, my mom reads, you know, about politics and (laughs) goes crazy, like I tend to do. But my dad just doesn't do that. He just, he was a trial lawyer for years. So I think he's very studied at seeing both sides of things. Uh And sometimes you don't want that when it comes to issues of like injustice or, you know, there's certain things that are like, we would like to lean into this side of things. However, I think there's something wise about meditating on paradox and saying, or not even paradox, just our own fallibility. I'll tell you something else. Being an actor for all these years has really helped me be a compassionate person. Mm. Because if you play someone who people might think is a villain, you can't. it's disaster to play them as a villain. You know, everyone thinks they're a hero or everyone thinks they're trying their best. So you have to really get under the skin of someone and say, why are they like this? Mm. And I think... I think compassion is the antidote to that knee jerk kind of Twitter mob mentality that we're living in right now. I would agree. Which is like, burn them at the stake, run them out of town, no forgiveness, no reparation. You know, I remember you and Richard Reeves were talking about that. Like, there's a great uh, impulse behind some of these movements. And, you know, if I don't know if you knew, I, I went really deep on the Rwandan genocide years ago. I read a bunch of books about it. And it's just, and I was there and I went to the museum. I don't know why I got so into it not into it but i was very but they did these the villagers would gather around and they would gather around the people that had killed their relatives Mm. and they had these they got to say whatever they wanted to them it was like a restorative justice kind of movement they had already spent time in prison or they were about to go to prison but they it was just this different way of thinking about justice where it wasn't throw them away and lock away, you know, lock the key. It was like, how do we repair a society that has been so torn asunder? Yeah. And how do we, um but I, you know, I think we have to do that for ourselves too. Like, I'm in this somewhat funny, but not super funny argument with my dad over the years because he always says I'm not a forgiving person.
1: Mm.
0: And I'm like... Let's test that. Well, but he also says, you know, we're Jew, we, we're Jewish, and he always says, "I'm an Old Testament guy," and I'm like, first of all, that's wrong. <laughs> right. Like the Torah and Talmud is loaded with admonitions to forgive. Yes, you know what I mean. That's 100%. not a that's not a fuzzy New Testament idea. That's right. actually, and I and I also think, you know, when we when we don't forgive, one, it's indicative that we're very hard on ourselves. You know, that's something. That's another thing I've had to really work on is like how hard I was on myself. Mm and i think being an artist that where my job is actually empathy has helped me let myself out of some kind of prison and let other people out of a prison that i might otherwise want to keep them in mm-hmm. i'm not always i don't i'm not always great at it but I'm with you know you. resentments are killers they're yeah. just they're not and they don't help anyone
1: yeah and it, what i think is fascinating is is that i'm not going to forgive you is the holding on of the the pain and the suffering, you know, it's like a, it's like some kind of statement of like I'm going to hold this hurt, yeah, and it's going to I'm going to feign honoring it, but what I'm really doing is trying to punish you.
0: Yeah, but it's the you know it's that classic like having resentment is drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Right, right. Like it is corrosive on the spirit to hold that stuff. Yeah, but but it's it, there's something there must be some kind of dark pleasure in it. You know what I mean? That's probably true
1: Yeah
0: (laughs) People hold on to it enough That there must be some weird pleasure Yeah, we get something from it We get something from it Yeah,
1: it's it's like the knowing That that person has somebody Who is hating them you know, it's like, you know that I don't forgive you. And at the end of the day, like, you'll have to. It live. also, you get to be the righteous
0: person. Uh-huh. You get to be the good person. Yep. And the other person is the villain. Yep. And that's very easy. That's a very easy binary to live in. But, you know, I, I think like, when you really do some interrogation of yourself, there's a great story that I love about Carl Jung. Uh, one of his protégés said, he was the easiest person to sit in front of because he had so interrogated his own interior and he found inside himself everything. He found murderer, Mm -hmm. he found hero, he found child molester, he found saint, sinner, you know, everything. He found everything. So when you had to confess something to him, he didn't flinch. He didn't say like, ooh, how could you? (laughs) You know, he was like, me too, essentially. Like, even if he didn't do it, he knew that he was capable of everything. I found that on ayahuasca. I've saw I've seen some real darkness in myself. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that because I've seen that darkness, it's like I feel less you, you know, all the people who crusade against whatever and then they're busted for that very thing. Mm-hmm. That's just not an integrated shadow. That's just like they've never done any work on I, looking. You I know? gotta
1: I gotta say my favorite is always the senators or the governors. Who are so against gay marriage or uh, yeah, or the pastors or anything, and all it, and this like news story comes out of them getting blown in their office, yeah. and it's like, yeah, of course. I gotta say, I I, I love those stories. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like I <it's> find <laughs> I have a dark pleasure in those stories. There you go, because you know hypocrisy is just the most odious thing. It's, you know, it's like, but, but if we don't take a hard, deep look at ourselves and our you know, in all the stuff, I mean, that's what I find like psychedelics and ayahuasca in particular is like, I have gotten some nights that are just a tour of my shadow. Yeah. And I, and I have no illusions that I am, I am oriented towards hopefully towards virtue, towards doing the right thing. But I'm also like, I'm a sleaze ball. I also, <laughs> you know, like I'm a, I, I've got a real degenerate in me also a lazy gluttonous thing that just wants to, Bring me grape, feed me grapes, (laughs) massage me, tell me I'm great, give me awards. Yeah. You know, without any sacrifice, without any service. Yes. You know? I mean, that's what's brilliant about the 12-step model is it says you have put yourself on the throne, even though you hate yourself. You are on the throne at the center of the universe. Mm. And we're going to get you off that throne. We're going to get you into service, and you're going to start feeling better about yourself. Mm. Because we don't actually want to be on the throne where we're, you know, her, his majesty, the baby,
1: you know, it's not what we really want to be. Yeah. 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 And I, I think the the other thing that AA inadvertently and maybe directly does is it helps people repair their attachment. Mm-hmm. You know, is like every single time you're in those moments where you want to drink, where you want to slide back into the drugs or the whatever it is, whatever the addiction is, what do you do? You call somebody. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you call someone and say, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, sometimes it's just like, oh, three minutes of not my story right. is like a mercy. Right. You know? Yeah. Can I get out of my own shit? So I, I always think about 12-step or any addiction model as essentially like, what false god are you enslaved to right now? Whether it's drinking, drugs, sex, food, gambling. Like there, you actually are in service to a god. Mm-hmm it's a false God or it's a God, it's a, it's a small God. It's a lesser God. It's powerful, Mm -hmm. but you are worshiping something. It's like David Foster Wallace said, like we all worship, Yeah, you know, what are you worshiping? And what I think it does is it says, we're going to stop you worshiping this God. We're going to direct you towards something true, Mm. something deep and true and has always been here and is benevolent and is on your side and wants you to be healthy and wants you to be connected and, and of service mm. and, and it redirects that worship,
1: mm. you know? I love that. I love that. And I think we will come back to God and come back to worship because I agree. And I think that many of us in today's culture not, maybe not necessarily the people listening to the show, maybe, but I think that many people have got caught worshiping things that are dubious And unhelpful, yeah, and and brutal to the rest of not not to be
0: overly political. I won't even say his name, but there's a there's a politician that like all he worships is money and status, Uh and he's considered like the Christian choice. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm I'm, I I know a little bit about Christianity, and I have great love for the religion, but I'm pretty sure that's not probably not it. That's not it.
1: My favorite, and I've I've actually talked about this on the show a few years ago because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic. I was starting to see this rise of memes of Jesus with an AR rifle. Oh, I, I, I thought, find that to be that is such idol worship to me. Yeah, it's such so wild. It is it is odious. Yeah. Odious. It is so yeah. Anyway, we I don't think we need to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I, you know, it we are in this very polarized time where people are are not only lost, but I think that they're internally they're so chaotic. Yeah. That they're just grasping for something to hold on to. Yeah. As the the ship of humanity is tossing and going faster than it ever has. Yeah. And tribe, identity,
0: like all that stuff can be an idol that's very easy to snatch and wear yes. and worship and say, This is who I am. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Like there's certain perennially true things, like if you say, like, we're all one. Like you'll get killed for that now. Mm-hmm. Like you can't say, you can't say you can't that. Say that. Uh, I might ask you to edit that out. Uh, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's it's wild that you can't like a, a vision that would would have been, you know, coming out of the mouth of Martin Luther King or, you know, Abraham Joshua Heschel or someone like these kind of visionaries
1: is now would be a quite a provocative yeah, statement. Boring. You know. Yeah. Let's take a left turn short sure. into how I met your mother. Okay. And just take a brief stop there. Okay. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time there because, well, for a number of reasons. But tell me a little bit about the moments in your life when this really started to hit, right? You got cast in this role. I know I'm taking like a sharp left turn from what we're talking <laughs> well,
0: about. Well, it's not, it's, it's all related. Yeah. But yeah.
1: So you get, you get cast, you get in this role, the show starts to blow up. What's happening in Josh Radner's life as all of that is transpiring? I mean, (laughs) that's a big question. (laughs) Getting getting punched in the face. Uh, Yeah, getting
0: punched (laughs) in the face, truly. Going down to drink some ayahuasca. And then Uh I continued drinking ayahuasca for years and years and years. I still, you know, I haven't done it for a while. But, you know, I, speaking of of false gods, I don't know. I don't want to call it false. But for years, the theater and acting, that was my god. You know, an empty Mm -hmm. theater was my cathedral. Like mm-hmm. that's where I wanted to be. That's what, where I felt the, the connection to spirit. I get that. And then when I, when I got what I thought I wanted, I found myself in more despair than I had been in, in certain ways ever because before you get what you want, you at least have hope that when i get this thing i'll be happy mm-hmm. you know it's a, it's very i'm sure it's beyond america but it feels like it's in the waters of america like when you get this thing you're going to be happy and i think that there's an under discussed and, and under researched and under not enough people talk about the despair of success mm. that that despair and the confusion and the alienation that comes with getting the thing you thought you wanted, Mm -hmm. where everyone in your life is saying, what a great thing, you did it, you know? And you feel, wow, this feels not like that. Mm -hmm. Now, I like some of the work. I like the regularity of the work. Like I said, those first two years, I was drinking a ton. My stuff with women was kind of out of control. I I was trying to enjoy, quote unquote, the spoils of success as culture says you're supposed to enjoy them. right? And I found that it just didn't bring me happiness. In fact, it brought me, it brought me more. The God-shaped hole in my heart was opening more and more. Mm-hmm. So I leaned into. I I think I found ayahuasca and spirituality, meditation. I, I was meditating before I was on How I Met Your Mother, but I think I I I was like, no, I need something true. Like I need what is true? What is truth? I needed to to find it. So I. I leaned more heavily into that stuff, some of which bore a lot of great fruit and some of which was a, a kind of like misdirection or it didn't, you know. But I, I started to get very clear on who my friends were, mm-hmm. who my community was. Why, why is that? Why do you think that, that happened? Well, because a lot of people want to be friends with you for reasons that maybe aren't, you know, they're just like, you have to be careful. A lot of people approach you and want to hang. Is that if you're on TV?
1: Would you say that's because of status or appearance or like what's the what's the predilection towards that?
0: I don't know. I mean, I I was pretty good about not going. There's a LA is a delightful place to live, by the way. You just have to know where not to go. (laughs) There's certain places you just don't go. Uh You know what I mean? Like, Uh and I I lived a pretty modest life. I'm not super acquisitive, so I wasn't like buying tons of cars or do, and I wasn't like out at the clubs, you know, you know, definitely would have bottle cars service. Cars, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, so in some ways I had, a, I had a, there was a part of me that was, led a more modest lifestyle, but there was another part of me that just knew I needed to find my tribe. I knew, I, I fell in with some really special people mm. that were kind of California-based, more, you know, hippie, hippie people that are still some of my best friends in the world who just like believed in something. You know, they believed in love and gratitude. And some of those relationships are, you know, not in my life, but a lot of the, the big ones still are. But it was very clarifying. I, I gave a talk in India in, I don't know, 2016, maybe 15, at this place called the Inc. Conference. And, uh, and I talked about how unnerving success is and can be and, and how to use it as a kind of spiritual practice you know, Ram Dass says this great thing about whatever's in front of you is your spiritual practice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like mm-hmm. whatever your life is, you, you trust that that course curriculum has been designed perfectly for you, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, it was weird to say like my yoga, my practice was erosion of anonymity, being super successful on a super successful show, but also feeling kind of trapped by it. And I ended up, I, I directed, wrote and directed two movies that during that time, which, like saved my life because yeah. I got to get behind the camera and I, and I flexed my wings as a writer and felt so good. So in some ways... Can it, you... Sorry, can you just say what those two movies were? Yeah, so the, the first one was called Happy Thank You More, Please. Yeah. which is phenomenal. Thank you, yeah. thank you. And the second one's called Liberal Arts. Yeah. They both premiered at Sundance. They both, you know, had this great kind of welcome into the world. And so I I, I felt like because in some ways I... Re, and and by, I should say also, we were on the air pretty quietly for about three or four years. And then I think the fourth season, Netflix put us on. Mm. And that just changed everything. Like our rating, our weekly rating started to go up really high. And then we just, with the cast, we talked about this, like everyone started to be like, it's weirder out there. Like people, more people are, stopping us and looking at you know it's a weird thing you walk in to grab a coffee and like people are looking people at you, looking at you. Yeah. i don't want to overstate it because i go a lot of places and people don't look at me the worst right. thing you could do is overestimate your fame right. you know you walk in and you're you're like, like, are you looking at me do you yeah, know who i am yeah you probably know and they're like no can
1: we have the salt you know they're just like asking for can we take this i'm chair? always i'm always baffled if somebody does right like i was in we were in new york last summer and I went into a juice shop, a juice store, and I like got a smoothie, and I walked out, and I, somebody said like Connor Beaton, and I was like, Yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that like, must yeah, be so me. cool, though. It's a very I mean, strange a, thing. The, the
0: difference is like I was on like a broadcast network show. Like, yeah, it's a million. Very I've gotten recognized thing. in Africa, India, yeah. and I don't always feel like they're. Tar- but I feel like if someone recognizes you, they're like. I watch your YouTube channel or I'm listening to the content you're making. Right, it's
1: so different. It's
0: very different, honestly, if someone comes up to me and says like, I love your music or I love those two movies you made. Because they just feel like they're more of an offering from me. Yes. Whereas I was more of a, I played in the orchestra of How I Met Your Mother. I I wasn't the composer or the conductor even. I like that. I like that
1: analogy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I never expect it. So it's like, that's, I think it's a huge, hugely different thing. What would you say was the essence of what made the show successful? Because for me, I didn't watch it. I think I only watched like the last couple seasons. And for me, it was like a case study in modern masculinity with the three main characters. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's a great, yeah. And maybe that's just my, because like that's the lens
0: that I see through all the time. I've actually talked about that. I was gonna make a joke that it was it was just all the Canadian jokes that were that <laughs> Listen, probably man, put it over the edge. That should probably it. Every time there was a
1: Canadian reference, I was like, Yeah I remember I the day home. they said to
0: Kobe Smolders there it was like halfway through the first season and Carter and Craig who created the show came up to her and they were like, Hey, we're thinking of making your character from Canada. Would you be cool with that? And she was like, that would be delightful <laughs> And then it's just like eight years of Canadian jokes, like relentless. <laughs> and they were awesome. They were good. They, were, they good. were good. Well, the great thing about Canadians is like they can take a joke. Oh yeah. You know, that's yeah, like yeah. part of the national character. Hundred percent. Yeah,
1: yeah. If you've ever watched, like, there used to be this show called Red Green, yeah, uh, on Canadian on CBC, and it was basically like these two ultimate Canadian dudes using duct tape all the time on fucking <laughs> everything, yeah. And it was just like duct tape and crazy glue and hockey sticks, and it was ridiculous. And then there's this new show called Letter Kenny. Which oh, I've heard of this. Is hilarious. I heard about it. Yeah, and they all they all sound like your cliche canadians you know like yeah oh how are you doing there bud yeah. what are you doing today there eh you know like then they all talk like that and they're getting into fist fights on the farm
0: my favorite thing to talk to canadians about and I, i'm almost sure i've asked you this okay I, every time i meet a canadian i'm like you love the tragically hip <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's my go to cuz it also like if you're not canadian yeah. and you ask about the tragically hip I've never met a Canadian who doesn't light up, uh-huh. say, I love the Tragically Hip. How do you know them? <laughs> and can we be friends now? Like, it feels like it is one of those obscure references. And if and not they, in Canada, they're like a stadium, they totally. were in a stadium they band. They are, they're Canada. a
1: stadium band in Canada. Yeah. I saw them. There was, I can't remember what year it was. There was this big outdoor thing called Stage 13 that I went to one year. Yeah. And they had like Tragically Hip. And uh, do you know Metric? Do you know I that? I don't fan? know Metric. Oh, okay. Uh,
0: no, I, I did a benefit that. in Toronto and ended up sitting at their table. They were great, but they're a Canadian band. But uh, so what I, made it hit? What made it hit? What made it a hit? Well, uh, well, let's go back to that thing. I, I, I have some theories, but yeah. you never know. Some of it, you know, William Goldman famously said, like no one knows anything in Hollywood. Like, yeah. like it's very confusing why things hit. What they? I think it's really smart and funny. Like it's and, and in the most basic way, it's a smart and funny show. It is. If you didn't know it, you might think. Oh, it's like a garishly lit sitcom with a laugh track. How funny can it be? But it's really funny. It's narratively very funny the way they would n- nonlinear kind of, they scramble the narrative a lot. Yeah. It it, it rewarded, it's, it's like a puzzle and it rewarded, it tickles your brain in a fun way. I think it's about formative times in people's lives that post-college, kind of move to a big city, mm. finding your tribe, feeling lost, not knowing if you're going to, if career's going to work out, if love's going to work out, if you can, you know, afford to stay in the city, all that stuff. Those are, those are kind of basic things. I do think the thing about masculinity, I would always say, I always said that it was a gender flip. Mm. So Ted and Marshall, my character and Jason Siegel's character, were much more, almost like um, stereotypically had like feminine, we were like, we're very interested in relationships, wanted to talk and hold our women. And, you, you know, we were romantic. Yeah. And then you and then the women were like, no nonsense. Right. Straight talkers. You know, Robin was like a cigar smoker. Loker, yeah. Didn't want to be held after sex, you know. And I think <laughs> they flipped the gender thing, which uh-huh. made it really funny but then Barney, the character that Neil played, was kind of like this parody of hypermasculinity. Yeah. This kind of like ridiculous. The, the, the issue is like some guys take that seriously and they're right. like, yeah, that guy's awesome. Barney's amazing. It's it's kind of like um Gordon Gecko. Like Oliver Stone clearly didn't believe that Gordon Gecko was supposed to be like a model <laughs> American. But then you have all these stockbrokers in the 80s and 90s that have Gordon Gecko posters. And right. it's like, them. oh God. Yeah. Um, So I do think it was this, it was this gender flip. It was this really interesting thing. But I also think that I have a lot of guys come up to me and say, I have a lot of women come up to me and say they relate to Ted,
1: Hmm. which is
0: very interesting. But I have a lot of guys come up to me and say, I never felt more connected to a character. And I will say this, this is, this is an interesting thing that I feel like I could talk about now because I'm not as close to it and not as sensitive. When I was on the air, I felt like there were some people that were like, Fuck. Most like I felt like people, some people were angry the at him. Hatred. They, they hated him because he was emotional uh-huh. and he was messy. Uh-huh. And he it was all these things that men are trying not to be, mm. you know, stereotypically, like trying to keep it together, not show their emotions, you know, not be confused and lost. And I had to model this kind of male vulnerability because at he a very kind of big scale. Lost, yeah. he, he is. And he also, yeah, he's lost. He's goofy. You know he makes some really wrong moves, like often uh-huh. um he's insecure, uh-huh. you know, which you're like we're not supposed to be overtly insecure, and he also had some really heroic, virtuous qualities like yeah. which which i I believe in. but I heard a lot of men you know my I become friends with this guy who's from Canada, actually, but he said i I always felt like I was so emotional as a man, mm. and I never saw myself modeled in culture. Hmm. until your show until you and I, I find those very moving you know that i was able that i was asked to do that hmm. you know i think i think it was valuable culturally and i think the i think the i think it was about love and it was about friendship and it was about it was towards the end it was about death Mm-hmm. So I think it was, I think it bit off a lot of bigger things than a multi-camera sitcom normally does. Yeah, there's it, some serious stuff. There's some serious stuff. It acknowledged it, it. was also one of the rare multi-cam sitcoms that made you cry every once in a while. And I think that if every fourth or fifth episode, you're kind of tearing up at this, you know, show that could also make you, you know, belly laugh or have inside jokes with your friends and a whole different coded kind of language. Like, <laughs> that's a cool show. Yeah. You know, I have a much more peaceful relationship with the show than I, than I used to. I, I used to be very, I don't know. I was confused about it. It was like, I didn't feel like it was mine, but I was so identified with it. My face was so identified with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a weird thing where I started to feel they took certain things about me and put them into the character, mm-hmm. like his intellectualism. Like I'm, I'm an, I'm a reader. I'm a, I do crossword puzzles. And they started putting that into the character. So then when I started being myself, yeah. publicly people were like you're just like the character and i'm like no they made the character like me yeah. <laughs> you know like <laughs> you have it wrong Yeah, you know and i just wrote this muse letter i don't know if you get my muse letters yeah. but i re- i wrote about this and said you know that that he was a part of me i played a part that was a part of me but mm-hmm. it's not all of me yeah. and it can feel very claustrophobia inducing to be reduced to something when mm. people say you're just this one. And I'm like, I didn't even write those words. Yeah. Like I was just doing my best as an actor. I was contractually obligated to <laughs> wear the red boots and, right. you know, do do that stuff. But, but I also, I, I ha- it, it, the blessings outweighed,
1: you know, yeah. the other stuff. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I love that perspective. I think culturally at that time, my sense of it, like when I watched it, it really was these sort of three. You know, as a guy watching it, there was sort of like these three male characters who kind of represented different archetypes of modern masculinity, floundering and trying to f- find their way. Yeah, in different versions. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> and I think for me it was interesting because I could see parts of myself in each character. Totally, you know, it's like oh yeah, I'd been the. The womanizing Barney and I'd been this guy that was lost. And I'd been this guy that was so romantic and like so obsessed with the relationship. Yeah. And and just trying to find like, who am I in the in the wash of society, right? Yeah. And I think I think that question, who am
0: I, might be like the meta, like the the baseline question of how I met your mother. Yeah. Like, who am I? And and he couldn't meet the woman he was supposed to be with until he knew who he was. So I think that's part of the journey of it, you know. Would you say that that is a true statement for most men? Again, I'm wary of anything overly prescriptive. For me, it's a true statement. Uh But I know, I have a lot of friends who got married in their 20s. And I know a lot of women who got married in their 20s who, they told me all the stuff that I spent the last, you know, decade or two figuring out in relationships, out of relationships, they had to figure out, under the umbrella of marriage, mm. right? So, you, you know, you marry someone at 25 or 27, at 37, at 42, at 48, like you're a, you're you're a, a different, different person. person. Yeah. <laughs> and the question is like, are you growing at a rate commensurate with your partner's growth? Are you growing in the same direction? I, have you heard that thing? Like everyone gets three marriages and if you're lucky, they're to the same person. I
1: haven't, but that's great. Yeah, isn't that cool? That's really good. Yeah. I think in, in part, that's why I actually waited so long to get married. I mean, I guess I wasn't so old, but I was, I think you weren't old for a big city, but maybe yeah, for like a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I grew up in a small town, you yeah, know, it was yeah. like 30,000 people. Yeah. a small ish, but I was 35, yeah. you know, <clears throat> and I think for, uh, you know, marriage rates, they're getting older and older and older and people are having children later and later and later. And I think for me there, I actually felt this kind of responsibility to get my shit together. Before I entered into that large of a commitment, yeah, you know, and I, th- I think a lot of men that I've talked to over the years feel a similar sentiment of like, should I give myself to something, to a commitment that's that large without really having a more full and broader scope of who I am, or at the very least give myself time to, to like mature into who i might be yeah that doesn't
0: always need to be the case but i had this talk with ben ben lee who i who i've made a lot of music with uh, an aussie songwriter and he he would say when when guys would say like i want to get my career settled Uh before yeah that's a big one yeah and he said every fortune 500 ceo was married when they like got their first loan for their business. Right, you know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not like they were at the top of their game and then found their right. partner. I mean, maybe some of them, but, but by and large, I feel like the right relationship can be rocket fuel on your life. I agree. You know? I agree. My, so, my life has definitely gotten a lot better. Yeah, yeah, and I think it makes things, it's kind of like, um, I don't have any kids, but like, I know my friends who've had kids, the first time they hold that baby, There was someone on your podcast that was talking about that. I forget who it was, but they were saying like, when I held that, my child and I realized, oh, like fucking around time is over. Yeah. Like I got to get real serious about everything. Yes. And I think it can be a call to step into a a deeper, more actualized version of yourself. Mm. If you realize that you're not living for yourself anymore, you know, Mm. whether it's a partner or a child, but it, it, you know, I, I this stuff has taken me a lot longer than it's taken other people. I'm 48, you know. I'm mm-hmm. with someone. I'm going to stay with with her. But it's uh, it's taken me a while, you know. And I and I think there was some sort of meta weirdness of being asked to model this search for so many people, and I wasn't. I I never. Like, God forbid, I never told anyone I loved them on the first date. I was like, my joke is like, people say, I, I got to try not to get married on the first date. I had to try not to get divorced on the first date because <laughs> I was always looking for like what was wrong. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, that was how my mind worked. And that's something I've ha- had to work through.
1: And was that looking for something that was wrong? <clears throat> was that a, like, a byproduct of childhood? Was that something that happened because of dating? Or sure. Like I mean, an it, everything. Yeah, it,
0: I, I think ultimately I had to accept the fact that there's something in me that wants to be alone, huh. that wants to push people away, that wants to find... I would make a case against people. I always knew where the exit signs were, mm. you know? And this is stuff I really actually needed some help with. Like, I... I it was right when I, I ended How I Met Your Mother, and I, I was right about to turn 40... I was like, I have no idea how to be in a relationship. I couldn't, I had had one relationship that lasted three years in my 20s. And I had a series of year-long relationships. But a lot of times just being single and kind of on the hunt, you know. uh, And there was something about turning 40, I was just getting sad.
1: Mm. Like
0: I was getting, there was a sadness that was coming. And I realized men who don't look at this shit, like really look at it and curb some of that behavior, it just doesn't age well. Yeah. And I was so scared of being just the the older guy in the bar when the lights come on, you know, <laughs> and I'm I'm like trying to take home some younger girl and I'm like what am I doing? Right. You know, and I just didn't so I and I always felt like there was something like why have my my why have like all my high school friends except one like why have they all figured this out like why oh, they all okay. why, why, why they all figure that out like I don't I didn't know like, was there a day in school I missed where they explained like <laughs> this is how you like have like long term committed relationships? relationships yeah and I you know but it was crazy because I'm I I'm really good at friendship you, you know are. I agree I'm really good at being vulnerable and talk like I had a skill set that should have been. Good for this, like kind transferable of thing. over to, yeah uh, and okay, i
1: but they are I, they are different beasts,
0: they are different you know? i mean friendship is a component of a of a romantic sexual relationship, but it's not the whole deal, yeah, you know, but i i something in me was like, I need help, hmm. you know, so I reached out i like i i actually got some help i actually i stopped dating for a time, you know um the
1: vag vacation
0: yeah, <laughs> I just got real like i started to look at the the parts of me that were self, you know, defeating or, or, or just didn't, because there was a point where I was like, do I want to be in a relationship? Like, maybe I'm just like a confirmed bachelor. Like maybe, I'm you know, that used to be a code for something else, but maybe I'm just someone who will have a series of relationships and that will be my life and I'll have, but I, but I, I did want to do it. You know, there, there's a thing of like, I'm really interested in life. I'm really interested in experiences like, Mm. Oh, I've never done that. Let's do that. You know, I don't want to do everything. There's certain extreme sports that I have no interest
1: in. <laughs> I see like the people going through the small crevices in the cave, like 400 oh, feet under. No, 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 of, like, I don't, no, no interest. No, interest. pay me.
0: Uh, no, none of that. <laughs> but, but in terms of like life checklist of not like quite a bucket list. It's not like you know have to go to the Amalfi Coast or whatever, right. which I would love to. But it's more like the big things. And I had all these relationships that were really exciting, really cool people. I had. You know, I would only be in a relationship with someone if I thought they were great. Hmm. But it was like, I couldn't take that next step. But I started to look and say, okay, I've had all these experiences. I've had all this professional success. But the thing I really haven't done is is gone super deep and hmm. said, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. One thing I loved that Martin Shaw said, he might've said it on your podcast or might've said it on another one, but he said, men around soul work, we have to trade at some point we have to trade growth for depth. Yes. And, you know, that just landed on me so much. Like at some point I just didn't want to amass, you know, like I said, I didn't, I'm not interested in stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would like my career to keep, you know, blooming, but at some, I I always wanted, you know, a friend of mine really lovingly reflected back to me. He said, I feel like when you're at a crossroads, even if it's at the 11th hour, you always break towards depth. Mm. You know, and it's true. Like I, I want to feel that my life is, is more about depth and growth, Yeah. you know, or, you know, take another analogy. It's kind of like, I don't need to own all the land, but I want to be a good steward of the land I have. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to till it, I want it to be fertile and I want to, so I'm in the process of getting more of that clear of what my land is, Mm -hmm. you know, and how to be a conscious gardener of it. Mm -hmm. But it's taken me a while. I
1: think that that is, I'm with you, that whenever my life has presented me with those inflection points, yeah, that I have had a predilection, predilection towards just like a, a desire to move deeper. Yeah. And I've never really known what it was or where it came from. And, and maybe I never will. And maybe that's not the point. Yeah. But that has been a part of my North Star. Yeah. Because I've seen what the ascension-oriented growth obsession has done for a lot of people. Yeah. And when I've pursued that, I've actually never really felt fulfilled. Yeah. I've never felt satiated. Yeah. And it can be, I can, it can be really exciting. I can really get into that part. And I f- I always feel this tension between this part of me that's just like, go for the growth, go for the growth, you know, yeah. like go after build things as big as possible and do whatever the fuck it takes. Yeah. And I have that living within me, but there's this other sort of like hand on the shoulder that just says, go slow, go low. Yeah. You know, and that, whatever that is, whether it's my grandfather or the older mentors that I've been so blessed to have in my life, that voice is always there and I've always listened to it. It's like, I've been fortunate enough to have some elder yeah. thing in my life that's pulled me more towards that depth. Yeah, I think it's probably, we never
0: talk about it directly, but I think it's probably part of our connection mm. is an attraction to that that, that depth, depth yeah. you know? I, I, I will say also that another Kind of poison kind of thing that's <laughs> laced into success and fame, yes, and money is that no one asks you to drop this stuff, no one says like you're you're allowed to stay in a suspended adolescence much longer hmm. if you have that stuff like. And to me, I I, I just, I, I kind of felt like I wasn't busted. I just, I turned myself in. I was like,
1: you got to get me off the streets, <laughs> you know? When you, so when you say no one asks you to drop that stuff, what are you referring to? I mean, being unmarried and
0: struggling with relationships at uh, 40 in Hollywood, successful. Right. I, I don't know. Like maybe some people might say like, what's going on with that guy? But most, uh, by and large, people don't. Yeah. You know, and you can, you can hide out there for a long time and it's not even any sort of slam against and I was that person like I I just knew that the life that that felt like my heart was yearning for was um I just had to drop a lot of that stuff and I had to say you know I think I think that the, the part of an adolescent idea is I can have everything
1: Mm -hmm. no
0: limitations no limitations so part of my addiction my addiction kind of template was variety Mm. and
1: options
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I wanted all options yeah I wanted to be able to date every woman that I was interested in I wanted to live every possible storyline and I think part of my growing up was acquainting myself with the truth that getting older is a huge part of getting older is loss Mm. That there is, that, that you know, I, I recorded this album in Nashville that's going to come out later this year, called, and it's called Eulogy. And the reason I called it Eulogy is because each song is like this mini funeral hmm. for this part of me that, that served me up to a point and then has to be kind of retired yep. and buried and also kind of kissed on the forehead and honored. Like, I don't want to say these parts weren't... They, they helped me get across the river, right? You're not going to have
1: like the angry Jewish funeral. <laughs> no, I mean, why, you why yeah. do that? Why do that? Yeah.
0: But, but I felt, um, you know, just acquainting myself with the inevitability of like grief and loss. And to say, I was just talking to a friend of mine who has now a 10-year-old kid. Hmm. And he said, there's a part of me that I... I could miss the like baby or the toddler, but then I'd miss this cool 10 year old that I'm living with, right? Yeah. Like, but, but there's still, there's grief in people getting older. There's grief in our getting older. There's grief in, oh, I, I'm choosing to be with this one person. That means I'm not going to be with these other people. I'm not going to live these other lives. Mm. But at the same time, if I, if I just stay in the world of options and variety, I, there's grief in not going deep yep. and not not you know having that soul expansive uh experience yeah so i think that in some ways you have to choose like are you interested in growth or depth mm. you know and and uh you know i i end up making even career decisions i I'm always like oh, I should be. I should have said yes to that thing that was more growth oriented. But I was like, but I didn't think it was good. It was like, well, but it, it was a big hit. You should have done it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and and but I I end up. I almost feel like I had this very big mainstream success, but my heart is like an indie yeah. art, artist who who kind of like. Really just tries to choose integrity at every turn. But I, I think you don't, I, I don't think it's so binary. I don't think yeah. you have to have, you know, there's certainly, they're
1: not exclusive.
0: They're no, there's certainly exclusive. great artists that seem to be in their integrity and people find them. And I, I would love more of that, yeah. you know. But I, but I do feel like I'm constantly, that, that is the question growth
1: versus depth for me in this moment, you know, mm. uh, if I'm weighing a decision. So limitations. Endings. I mean, what's what's interesting, but what I hear you saying is one of Carl Jung's proteges talked about this concept called Puer eternus, Which in, oh, I know all about Puer Is yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the eternal boy, yeah, right. And I, what's interesting is that I think in our culture, our, our culture really idolizes youth, you know, and longevity. Yeah, and this notion that that freedom means that you should be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And there's no endings. There's no limitations. We don't grieve losses. We don't grieve death. You know, Stephen Jenkinson, who I've had on the show, yeah. you know, I've talked about said, like we live in a death phobic culture. Yeah. Right. That we're so afraid of endings, but there's a maturation that comes with the acknowledgement of those endings and then the pursuit of those limitations, right? The, the, the acknowledgement. so I want to just return to your relationship to relationships and maybe inquire a little bit around what limitations have you had to explore? What endings have you had to put into place in order for you to find your way into a deeper orientation within relationship? Jesus, Connor.
0: Um, I mean, first of all, I, I, I would agree I I I think it's part of the I think it's a real grievous problem in our culture that we and and this goes back I think there might have been you know whatever you can quibble narratively with the end of how i met your mother but it was about death and my friend Alec Lev who who did the how i met your mother podcast we were talking about this he said I think some of the outrage about that was people were angry that we reminded them of that about death yeah and that can be, it's so weird for the most common thing ever <laughs> is is like a contra, like people get angry if you remind them, Yeah, you know? Um, my my girlfriend is a psychologist and she did her PhD, you know, her dissert- dissertation on the connection between love and death and how a, a more presenced awareness of death and mortality in a relationship increases intimacy and connection in a partnership. Mm. And I one time said to her like, how do we How do we stay at this? How do we do it? And she said, we remember we're going to die. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you know, it's like till death do us part. It's like, it's not forever. Actually, yeah. it's not forever. Yep. You know? And sometimes I, <clears throat> when I remember the fact of mortality, it wasn't Richard Rees talking about like, if you had one more year to live, like, would you be okay yeah. with how your your year is going or how it went? Yeah. And... These are great exercises, actually, like death meditations, because it's it's so crazy that our, our our completely immature relationship to aging and death, you know, and I'm a product of this culture. I, ha- I also have an immature relationship to aging and death. I'm just trying to remedy some of it.
1: Well, it's funny that you then attracted the woman that you did. I know.
0: Right? I lot. know. <laughs> I know. And, um but but you know that was a depth move yeah right and um and i remember the the night we met i asked her you know what she did and and she and she said i i do i had specialized in this love and death work but i'm stepping away from it and i said why and she said i felt like i needed more experience with both mm. that it was becoming kind of too academic or clinical and i wanted to you know have a little more love and a little more death before I talk. I could talk about it with some, you know. Yeah, and and that really struck me. I yeah. thought that was a really um, beautiful thing. So, you know, the the, the funny thing is, like life. I'm, I'm listening to. I could not recommend this highly enough. But Nick Cave, who is an Australian songwriter, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, um, he lost a, a teenage son years ago. I think 2017 in a tragic accident. And he has become this kind of like grief elder. He's just like the most eloquent voice on the scene, I think, about grief and loss and time. And there's this book called Faith, Hope, and Carnage, which is a series of interviews he did with um, a journalist named Sean O'Hagan. I think he's a journalist, but I'm listening to it. It's a great listen. But he talks about what he realized about the kind of grief he underwent, which he called an annihilation, mm. complete annihilation. And he said, what I tell people and what I learned from my fans and from people who reach out to me is this is common. Yeah. It's common. It's coming for everyone, yeah. this kind of loss. And we can bury our head in the sands around that sand around that or we can absolutely surrender to the non-negotiable aspect of that. And he even says... Even if if you are have the great good fortune to be loved deeply, your absence, your death mm. is going to annihilate someone. Yeah. You know, it's just Jenkinson talks about this, just woven Inalible. in.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think when we when we're in a death-denying culture, which we're in, we hide our elderly. We hide our we 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 bury people very fast. You know, it's like in it when we get shocked by death. Yeah. I don't know why we even get shocked by it anymore. Yeah. Like it like. <laughs> It is absolutely baked in. Yeah. You know, I did have a really interesting thought. I've been, I've been going to the, I try to go to the gym every day. I love day, how right? excited you get about <laughs> it. Like, I'm,
1: you just got like, yes, I'm excited I, I had I'm this with thought. You.
0: I was in the sauna at the gym uh-huh. and it's a very hot, very good sauna. And I try to stay in, you know, as long as I can. And I thought, man, if I didn't know, if that door wasn't openable, <laughs> this, I'd be in hell. Yeah. Right, this is hell. Yeah. But if it's ten or fifteen minutes with the option to leave yeah. and for this this heat to end, it's kind of it's really pleasurable, right? Yeah. yeah. And I had this thought: immortality might be a kind of hell. Mm. That if there was no option to leave or end this thing, and I'm not sure who knows I, this thing might go on in various ways. I don't know. I I believe in the kind of immortality of the soul on some level, but but the fact that we have an exit. And in fact, I think that exit is what makes it, was it Martin Shaw said in another thing, God, I love that guy. <laughs> Martin, if you're listening, I love you. Martin. Um, but I, he said, humans, what we have over the angels is we have these bodies and we have the finitude, if that's a word, like the finite, like we have death. Mm-hmm. And because of that, being a human is much sexier. Mm. Because there's pathos and there's sadness, and it's going away. Even you know, an orgasm in in French, you know, they call it the little, little death, death yeah. right? Like, there's something absolutely tragic about being <laughs> the human. End of the orgasm. Well, no, there's something yeah. tragic about just being a human being. Yeah. And there's something hilarious about it, you know? <laughs> like, like Jenkinson talks about this when you hold your baby and you say, "I brought you here to die." Yeah. Like, f- fundamentally, that's what it is. And I'm going to have to prime you to be okay because I'm not going to be here if all goes well. I won't be here when you die. Right. So you're going to have to be, have enough kind of knowledge and stamina and wherewithal to do it without me.
1: Mm.
0: I mean, it's it's like if you if you spend enough time meditating about it, it makes you want to curl up in a ball. It makes you want to weep. It makes you want to say thank you. Yeah. It makes you want to laugh because it's so goddamn funny it's true (laughs) you know and and i think all the best art is about love and death Mm. and grief you know all the all the the best songs all the best podcasts you know it's like i want to talk about this stuff because i feel like to not talk about it is a kind of it creates so much internal dissonance yeah if we're not talking about the fact that we're dying every moment that we're getting closer to the grave every moment it It feels like we're not talking about the elephant in the room. And I think that children know it on some level and they feel it. Mm -hmm. They feel they're being lied to. Mm -hmm.
1: And then, then we grow up and we become the liars ourselves. It almost seems like, I've thought about this and Vienna and I have talked about this, that part of our role as parents is to actually help our son and help our kids know what to do with suffering. Yeah. Know what to do with endings. Know what to do with death. Like we had a. I think I shared a little bit about this with you, but like we had such a wild experience where, right before Code was born, our dog Bronx was diagnosed. Yeah, with I cancer. remember. I remember. Right, and so there was this very strange immediate dichotomy. It was of, like they high fived right on, on the, the one way, way in, right? Way out. It was like this yeah. revolving door of life and death, yeah. of love and death, and, and it was. I've had a lot of people pass away in my life. Bronx was this incredible character. We really loved him. But we sat with him in in his final moments. Right, I I put my ear to his chest. I listened to his heart literally stop beating. Mm. Vienna held his paw and looked into his eyes, and we were just there crying and breathing and just being with him in his final moments. And at first, it felt like this tragedy, like we were being robbed of something. Yeah. You know, because both of us had... This picture in our mind of our child laying with our dog, yeah. you know, all the cliche Instagram photos yeah. and videos that we had seen of like, yes, our golden retrievers, it's just going to be beautiful. And then he wasn't there. And it was honestly, it moves me right now as I talk about it, because it was one of the most profound experiences in the sense that not the joy necessarily, but, but the joy of getting to be with him in those final moments. Yeah was not the same as welcoming my son into the world but it was it was a measure of of profound experience that i really didn't expect yeah to just be with him and it made me grieve for the for the people who don't get that yeah you know who are ushered out of this world out of their body with no one around to hold them. You yeah. know, because when we're hopefully when we're ushered into the world, there's people there to welcome us and greet yeah. us and hold us. And so I feel like I got a very deep lesson in what parenting is. You know, like God was sort of like, and by the way, yeah, you should probably prepare your son yeah. for the the weight that culture is not going to yeah. actually help him learn how to deal with. Yeah. Thanks for telling that I got I got real
0: emotional listening to that. I I um I would say that I, and it's not, I'm not laying this at the feet of anyone. I did not get a good training in suffering. Mm. I have had to learn that along the way. Yes. Yeah, which you you do, yeah. no. <laughs> you know, if you're paying attention, <laughs> it's you learn. Like you kind of have I to. didn't get a, I didn't get a, uh, I had to, life had to teach me when things don't go my way, when there is loss, when there's grief, like mm. how, how, but, but I think it's those moments that reveal who we are. You know, essentially, at our essence. But I, but I also, um, the third thing I was going to talk about, in the pivotal thing I had mentioned to you, <laughs> was getting my dog Nelson. Yeah. Speaking of astrology, a friend of mine got me an astrology session with his teacher. Who do you know, James Hillman? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. his son, Lawrence, is a really amazing astrologer, Lawrence huh. Hillman. And he's not woo-woo. He's not a prophet. He's not predictive. He talks in archetypes. Like he talks in a very Jungian language. Awesome. Incredible, right? So I had this really powerful session with him. And he asked me if I had a dog. And I said, no. I, I said, I was al- I've been allergic my whole life, you know. And he said, could you get a hypoallergenic dog? And I said, probably. And he said, I think it would be a very good idea for you to get a dog. Hmm. Uh, and I said, why, why is that? And he said, it would be very good for you to be loved by something for no reason and i immediately logged it away and a couple months later i i i started you know this kind of search and i and i ended up with this you know nelson yeah <laughs> you know nelson well know nelson. you saw nelson you spent a lot of time with nelson his first year of his life i did yeah yeah, yeah. Your your wife, Vienna, one of her favorite things on the earth is to pick the black gunk out of Nelson's eyes. The boogers, the eye boogers. <laughs> she loves it. She's like she, such a, she's such a mom. I know. Her. She's so good at that. I know. Yeah. She got mad when I would do it. She was like, that's my job. <laughs> yeah, do not steal this from me. Yeah. But um Nelson has radically altered my life. And I remember um, two things. One, I was very nervous about the first week when it, they were like, you have to run him downstairs every two or three hours.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I thought I was going to be so angry that my sleep was, and I just woke up so effortlessly and I scooped him up. And I remember the feeling of holding, he's so little, you know, walking him downstairs in the middle of the night. And it was so tender yeah, and it was so beautiful. And I was out in the, you know, cold, like waiting for him to go. And he would just look up at me. And my friend Ed says, he said, we love babies because we clean up their poop. We love dogs cuz we clean up their poop. Anything we clean up their poop, we love, you know. <laughs> That's so weird. And it's it is it's weird, true, but though, it, but the true. truth is yeah. it uh, going back to that kind of thing of like we want to be dethroned like like part of my pain as I was getting older was I was too focused on myself. I didn't have another thing outside myself that I was really paying attention to and Nelson all all he does is love me back but I feed him I walk him I clean up his poop I do you know I do all these things and it's just this I get this deep love back I get this shattering heart expansion and the other thing about Nelson is that you get a dog and part of the the gift of a dog is you get the 10 to 15 years right like you don't get 30 40 years yeah you get what you get yeah and the moment i fell in love with this dog which was very fast i can, i can make myself cry just thinking about what you what you described with bronx like the moment of goodbye yeah and how much like i'll have to th- <laughs> sorry like how much i'll have to thank him for yeah you know and um i used to never understand when people get emotional about their pets i was like i wasn't an animal person <laughs> until this dog just showed me like what that relationship can be. And also like, what a teacher, you know, what a teacher of like loving for no reason. Cause I I think like a lot of people, I learned a very conditional love. I thought I had to be excellent, perform, perform, achieve to get love. And Nelson doesn't care if I book a big job or (laughs) like, he doesn't care. He's just excited I'm home. Yeah. You know, and there's something so sweet and achingly sweet about that pain, you know, and that he's going away, that he won't be here forever. And it's just like, what a teacher, yeah, you know,
1: what a teaching, like, like a ferocious teaching. Yeah. I love that notion of getting loved for no reason, for no reason whatsoever. I, I feel like the moments that have in some ways defined my marriage and my relationship have been these moments where, I've either been loved in a moment where I thought I should, I didn't deserve it. Yeah. You know, or I've been loved for no reason yeah. whatsoever. It's like, Oh, I didn't do anything or yeah. there's not a, th- this isn't impressive. You're loving me for no reason. It's not because I'm performing well or whatever it is and vice versa, you know, where I've been, where I've been conscious enough to actually give that to, yeah. to Vienna. And yeah. it's, It's something that I feel like we're all craving for, you know, at at our cores is just that sense of I belong and I belong just because. Yeah. And I think part of the challenge that I see with a lot of men is there's this narrative out in modern society that says women are born with value and men aren't Mm. and men have to build their value. Mm. And I see this pushed out through certain channels quite a bit almost saying like you as a man don't have value until you've earned it. Right. And I think that that value is different from the status that is often being talked about. But yeah, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit to know that there's a lot of men that are out there who have probably been very successful, had a lot of achievements or, or maybe done nothing and have never experienced that getting loved for no reason. Or if they did, they rejected it right? because they they are under this spell that says, you have to have done something in order to be valuable, in order to then receive love.
0: Right, but then you do something that, by all accounts, by society's standards, should secure you yep. that love, and you don't feel it. Right. And, and in fact, like me, you feel more despairing than ever. I mean, I, I think the, that a relationship at its best, a good relationship, and there's no such thing as a perfect relationship, just a, a really healthy, rooted in, in the kind of good, honest stuff, mm mm-hmm it helps rewrite some of these terrible scripts in our heads yeah you know my girlfriend says this great thing that family's the only thing you get to do twice mm. you know the first one you didn't have much of a say in and the second one you get to have a little you know you get to have more say a little bit what, here what, and there what, well, a little bit not all of it it's a collaboration <laughs> a bit here and there. yeah but um but i think we have to rewrite some of this stuff because you know it's 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 also like i think there's a lot of wounded hurting men out there who think when I get this, I'll finally feel happy or I can get the kind of woman I want. And in some ways, you won't believe me when I tell you that won't be actually the case. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to do it. Yeah. You have to get it. You have to go out, you hunt, you do the thing. You come back with the, the spoils. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe for a it does work for a little while. Like, I don't want to say it doesn't work at all. Like, yeah. there's a kick. I mean, but it's a bit of a drug, right? Like, you spike up and then you crash. I just think that there are sturdier things to... And not to say we shouldn't work or strive or succeed. I'm, I'm for those things. But there are sturdier things to kind of put our, you know, throw our lot in with. And, and relationship and love and community and service and dogs and, you know, all that stuff is so,
1: so good. Let's let our final stop of this conversation be in the spirit realm and in the realm of plant medicine. Sure. Because that has played a huge part in your life. And we've talked <laughs> about it a little bit. We don't have a tremendous amount of time left, but maybe just for, for my own knowledge and for the people that, that are out there, maybe just give a little bit of context of your journey with plant medicine and a little bit of what's come of it for you come from it i should say yeah um it's easy to do this in five minutes yeah yeah, right (laughs) like Um, like so i left this to the very end
0: well like i said you know i i I started working with ayahuasca in 2007 and i did it for years and years and years multiple times over the years i've done you know probably 150 ayahuasca ceremonies i i've done some peyote ceremonies which is not as much my medicine but i respect it Mm -hmm. deeply I've worked with San Pedro Cactus, which is another interesting plant. I've only done it once, but I I had a pretty profound experience with it. I've worked with some heart openers that have been really powerful, Sassafras and MDMA and... um, Psilocybin? uh, Psilocybin, yes. A lot of psilocybin. (laughs) Um, LSD, which I think can give some gifts, is an interesting medicine. But yeah, psilocybin, I have very powerful experiences with. You know, for me, it was like, one of the one of the big gifts is it almost like reanimates the world, not reanimates it allows you to see how animate the world is and mm-hmm. how oh, these trees are alive, these trees are beings and and with ayahuasca, especially the that we are it's not just three people in this room right now there are there are things happening mm-hmm. that we cannot see, and some of these medicines allow you to see they also allow you to see kind of in uh, cellularly you know where there's a Ethno- or, uh, anthropologist named Jeremy Narby who wrote a really interesting book called The Cosmic Serpent, where he was with this ayahuasca tribe and he, he, he was so curious why people see snakes in ayahuasca and he thinks that it's the double helix of your DNA mm. that you're actually kind of in your in your body, kind of seeing this. Cool. Um, I mean, I I think that I always come back to this Aldous Huxley quote who. You know, he wrote Brave New World, but he also wrote the the perennial philosophy, which is an incredible book. And he was this towering 20th century figure, but he was very interested in psychedelics and medicine, meditation, all all world religions. And he was asked at the end of his life, you know, you've tried everything. You've literally tried everything. Like, what what did you get? And he said, I'm embarrassed to say that like all I really got was try to be a little kinder, you know? And when I come off these journeys, no matter how hard they are, because ayahuasca can be quite harrowing. I mean, it can be. And rigorous yes, shit and, and tough. But when I, when I come back and I, sometimes I have to comfort myself in the midst of it and say, if I can say, you know, you're going to be having blueberries in the kitchen talking <laughs> about this in like three hours. Like, just hang on, you know? But I find that the it's a cliche, but that kind of journey from the head to the heart is really treacherous, really hard. It's, it might be what every story is about ultimately. Mm. But like when I'm home in the heart and I, and I know that I am loved and that I'm capable of love, that I am here for a reason, that I'm connected to something much larger than myself, my own ego, my own needs, mm. that I'm not going to hell that I'm not being punished. You know, as Richard Rohr says, like everyone who gives it up to find God meets a lover, not a dictator. Mm. You know, it, it acquaints me with something benevolent that is at the heart of this. The, the heart of the heart of the heart of the heart, the beating heart of this thing is benevolent, you know? And that's a lot what I get from from these medicines. And the fact, I was thinking about this the other day, you you drink these plants, you know? And these plants are virtuous. Hmm. Like they're, they're telling you to apologize to that person who, who you right. hurt. Right. Like what, why is this plant telling, why isn't the plant telling me you need to double down on your resentment? Right. It never tells you that. Invest more in your 401k. Yeah. It doesn't tell you any of that stuff. Right. It tells you like, it illuminates your sacred path for you. Yeah. And it tells you to, to be more, you know, kinder or, or, you know, magnanimous or whatever it tells you, but it's a, they're virtuous. Mm. And there's something about me, like I believe in virtue. Like I always, I I don't like rooting for the villain. Like I want the hero to win, you know, like I, I, there's something very, I don't even think it's childlike. I think it's like, I had a meditation teacher who said, we love sin, but we actually love virtue more. Mm. Just, he's like a little bit more. (laughs) We love it a little bit more. So I want to make art that is reflective of the things that I learn in this, you know, with ayahuasca and psilocybin and these other medicines that I, you know, I think have to be used very cautiously and sparingly and with great reverence, you know, set and setting and all that. Like, like. do not take these recklessly, if
1: anyone's yeah, that Don't go to a party and do I <laughs> work, Don't. Don't. I mean, that Very, terrifies me to yeah.
0: even think about that. It's not a party. It's the opposite of a party medicine, <laughs> you know? Can you imagine? Oh, God. Just horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I think there's... Um, it puts me in touch with my best and bravest self mm. and makes me want to live more courageously and more lovingly. You know, that's it. I love it. I love it. I feel... That there's a sense of like awe and wonder. Yeah, that's
1: another thing. It reacquaints you with those things, awe and wonder. Those are great. What, this maybe the last question and we'll, we'll end here. What would you say, if at all, is the connection between God and awe and wonder? I think
0: Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a great Jewish theologian, was friends with Martin Luther King. He was just a kind of towering spiritual figure from the 20th century. But he said, to be spiritual is to be in awe. I think one of the things, and this is why I actually really like plant medicine, is because we get habituated to the material world, especially if you're, you're, you're the same house and the same bed and the same face you're looking at. and you're, Everything becomes flat. I, I, I always thought, and again, I don't have kids, but I always thought one of the, the, the special things about having a child is that the child is seeing things for the first time. And it reacquaints you with that feeling of discovery and wonder and Mm -hmm. awe. But for me, with plant medicine, you know, you're like, oh, I've seen this tree a lot, but not this way, (laughs) you know. And there's something, it it, it brings you back to more childlike, open, innocent state. It it restores you to innocence. Mm. And I think that's the point of all spirituality is like it reacquaints you with you know, it's not like, you know, like the, the, the part of you, I like, have seen it, and done it all. You know, nothing, nothing amazes me anymore. But to be amazed. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm always looking to be amazed. You know, I want to be awestruck. I want to be struck dumb with wonder, you know, splendor or. So I think, I think there is, I think there's a deep connection. I am you know, in any holy book, when a human encounters the divine, the first thing they are is afraid. And the angel always says, do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. Or God says, do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. I think Richard says this, Richard Rohr, that you know it's the most common phrase in the Bible and it appears 365 times. I don't know if that's exactly true, but it would be amazing if it that was true. Cool. But this notion of do not be afraid, but there is something about when we encounter, that's why I always think like, when we get to either the moment of our death or uh, you know, these defining moments in our lives, whether they're birth or whatever, like you can't speak, maybe that's why I'm having trouble finding words, mm-hmm. right? like it's pre preverbal postverbal like there's something our our mind's short circuit, and we're in the we know we're in the presence of something so much bigger than us, and but we are it. that's the thing. Yeah. Like, we're also that. We can't be separate from that. We actually are getting in touch with the foundational element of what we are and where we came from and where we're going. And just, you know, I I I forget this, by the way. I will forget this when I leave here,
1: mm. you know? Yeah.
0: But I'm glad that we're talking about this so I can at least remember it for today. Mm. That
1: is a beautiful place to find our own limitation in this conversation (laughs) and this ending feel the loss of it um, yeah there's so much more that i would love to talk to you about so maybe uh a part two in the future sure i'd love that and and
0: i i really do connor I, i i love what you're up to thank you i think you're doing great work here and i and i i can only imagine there's just so many people that are inspired by you and learning from you and
1: um it's awesome thanks brother i appreciate that Appreciate that. Appreciate you and um, for everyone that's listening and watching. Make sure you man it forward. Make sure you share this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy. I got to do the, the normal thing, even though we're sitting across from each other. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.